0: Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. Today's show is the future of environmental protection and social justice with former EPA official, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, now the executive vice president of National Wildlife Federation and founder and CEO of Revitalization Strategies. Thought leader, international speaker, policymaker, community liaison, trainer, and facilitator. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali serves as the vice president of environmental justice, climate, and community revitalization for the National Wildlife Federation. He is also the founder of Revitalization Strategies, a business focused on moving our most vulnerable communities from surviving to thriving. Dr. Ali worked for 24 years at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. He began working on social justice issues at the age of 16 and joined the EPA as a student, becoming a founding member of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. Breathing clean air and drinking water are fundamental rights, however, these rights have been denied to many low-income communities and communities of color, who often live next to massive industrial facilities that pollute the air and water. Our guest today has been working towards solving historical injustices that target certain communities for class- and race-based discrimination, putting them in the path of harm from toxic exposure, climate disruption, and industrial accidents. In this show, we discuss Dr. Ali's history of working at the EPA and why he had to leave that position. We talk about the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, the EPA regulation of forever chemicals and drinking water, and vehicle pollution standards. We also discuss how the EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gases has been dialed back by a recent Supreme Court decision. Through his public advocacy, Dr. Ali shares his holistic approach to empowering and revitalizing vulnerable communities to secure environmental health and economic justice and how all of us can use our talents to be part of the larger change while also curbing climate anxiety and burnout. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and this is Eco Justice Radio and our show, The Future of Environmental Protection and Social Justice. It is my honor to welcome our guest, former EPA official, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, now the Executive Vice President of National Wildlife Federation and founder and CEO of Revitalization Strategies. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Well,
1: thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you.
0: Oh my gosh, it's an honor to be with you. I have so many questions for you. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, you are a former high-ranking EPA official who helped found the Office of Environmental Justice and have over two decades of service to the EPA. In 2017, during the Trump administration and when Pruitt was assigned as the EPA administrator, you resigned from the EPA with a pretty amazing resignation letter. And we're going to get into the details of your resignation. But first, I want to break down the EPA for a second, just in case we may not all understand what the role is, right? Given their name, we can assume that everyone understands that the purpose of the EPA is, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency. You're supposed to protect us, right? They may expect a lot from the EPA and assume that their purpose is to protect the environment. Simply put, what is the role of the EPA? Does the EPA create regulations? Do those need to be approved by Congress? Break it down.
1: It's all of that. So, you know, let's start at the basics that sometimes people miss about the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, its mission is to protect public health and the environment. And we often miss that public health aspect in people's general understanding of the agency. And the agency works under a a number of sets of laws, uh, some that people are familiar with, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act super Superfund. Some people have heard about Superfund, some of our most toxic sites across our country. So Congress creates those sets of laws, and then EPA lives them out through regulations and, and statutes and actions. So, you know, the main job of EPA uh, is to make sure that you and your children have a healthy environment to live in and that we are regulating those toxins that can make you sick, uh, that can shorten your life. And, and also give business and industry um, a, a sort of a, a set of parameters in which they can operate in. So that's the 60
0: seconds. And the office, that you were the founder of the Office of Environmental Equity at the EPA, which eventually became the Office of Environmental Justice. What was the purpose of this office and your role within it?
1: Well, you know, that the office actually came about through a set of recommendations from the Michigan Working Group in the late 80s and early 90s, a number of frontline leaders, academics, and others who were saying that we have these laws that are in place, but all of the people are not being protected, especially vulnerable communities, lower wealth white communities, communities of color, and indigenous brothers and sisters who are dealing with these sets of impacts that were happening from toxic pollution, uh, from lack of being able to fully participate uh, in the decision-making process. So that office was created uh, in November of 1992, underneath of uh, William Riley at that time, uh, who was a Republican uh, administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. But it came back to uh, communities asking for there to be this central place in the federal government where they could come, have conversations, have a better way of getting in the door, if you will being able to understand some of the choices that were being made, and hopefully be able to play a role in framing out of many of the actions that EPA would be doing.
0: And as I mentioned a moment ago, you left the EPA during the Trump administration, and I mentioned your resignation letter. Why did you leave? Uh,
1: Because I took an oath. I took an oath to protect our country, and I felt that And it wasn't just a feeling, you know, at that time, incoming President Trump and uh, the folks that he had identified to be administrator were very clear about how they felt about environmental protection and that it needed to be uh, minimized. And I understood that our most vulnerable communities already were not getting everything that they needed to keep them safe, to help them to move uh, from surviving to thriving, as I often talk about and that they were going to place people's lives in greater jeopardy. And I knew that all the promises and everyone who had invested in me all those years from grassroots leaders to civil rights leaders, to a number of other folks that I just couldn't personally be a part of it. I believe that if you're going to serve under an administration, then that means that you have to be in alignment uh, with some of the things that they're trying to move forward on. And and I couldn't be a part of hurting communities across our country. Yeah, that's,
0: that's, Pretty bold, and I highly respect that. Thank you. In your resignation letter, you refer to the importance of communities speaking for themselves, so that government can respond to their needs. Why is the voice of the community so incredibly significant in helping the EPA do their job more effectively?
1: Well, it helps folks to understand where the gaps are. Who are the folks who are being disproportionately impacted? We we know that those who have wealth and privilege have a way of being able to fully engage in a system and we also know that our most vulnerable communities communities in kentucky or west virginia communities uh, in louisiana or mississippi often don't have those resources they don't have lobbyists that you know they don't have all those folks who know the levers and know how to pull them so making sure that we have processes where communities voices are honored And not just honor, but also have the ability to make a process stronger and better and more inclusive and more protective is incredibly important. So, that is a bedrock. Uh, Communities speak for themselves. For those of us who come out of the environmental justice movement, we often talk about that because, you know, Mr. Ramirez remembers when there used to be a facility or a site around the corner that maybe wasn't captured in some database because it was before that was actually created. You know, folks can tell you about the impacts when they're fishing I and mean, they're seeing, you know, different types of conditions and diseases that may have, you know, starting to happen. There's a laundry list of reasons why communities having a strong voice in the process is needed for us to make sure that we are truly protecting everyone in our country.
0: And sometimes it's the those experiences that lead to the, you know, finding out that it's even happening. It's, you know, the experiences of, I was fishing, like you were saying, or I was down at, you know, the stream in my backyard. And if they had not noticed that that was happening or that there was a change over the past 10 years, then that environmental disaster might continue and cause even further destruction. Yeah.
1: we see it all the time, you know, throughout, throughout history, you know, how important local voices are to the process. Uh, the importance of moms. Moms pay attention to everything that's happening uh, with their children or or the, if they have uh, grandchildren, if they're a grandmother. And we often, when you don't have those individuals being able to fully share about the changes they're seeing and then us utilizing both community-based participatory research or community science along with um, traditional sciences to be able to find the answers of why this may uh, be happening, Uh, then we're missing, uh, you know, a significant opportunity to make real change happen. Indigenous brothers and sisters, you know, who are very tied to the land, who've been sharing, you know, decades upon decades of changes that they've seen. You know, you've got to make sure that you're honoring uh, those sets of uh, information if you truly want to get ahead of the curve uh, in many instances of some of the things that, that folks are being exposed to.
0: Maybe that, I think that's a good transition in defining for our listeners what it what environmental racism is.
1: Mm. <laughs> environmental racism is where we place everything that nobody else wants. Waste treatment facilities. Nobody wants to buy a house and put it next to a waste treatment facility or a certified animal feeding operation. Folks is like, well, stop it. what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about hog farms and chicken farms and turkey farms, you know, the impacts that have the water quality there, but also the smells that can just blow your mind. Or nobody wants to live next to a petrochemical facility or or, or, or waste treatment or a number of these different types of things that are out there on an incinerator. You've never seen anybody say, you know what, I've been saving up for 20 years and I sure hope that there's an incinerator in my backyard because, oh my goodness, I really want to get some of that medical waste smell and exposure to toxins. So these are the things that we often don't think about. So environmental racism, when I say it's about placing things in vulnerable communities and communities of color on indigenous land, uh, in lower wealth white communities land, it's because we often see them as sacrificable people or sacrifice zones. Um, And that's where the environmental racism comes in. Environmental racism also comes in when we are creating laws and sets of actions that are not taking into account the impacts on our most vulnerable. So that's another part of that paradigm. The other part of the paradigm around environmental racism is around resources, knowing that we have disinvested in communities of color in vulnerable communities and move those resources to other communities so that they can be living in very sustainable and pristine areas. So it is about making sure that we understand these impacts. In many instances, some intentionality there and being able to move forward in a positive direction where we don't make those mistakes of the past and we are willing to make the investments that are necessary to help those communities to be uplifted. It is a part of what the American dream is supposed to be about. Um, And now in this moment, we have an opportunity to address those sins of the past, to address that it was environmental racism uh, and environmental injustices that have continued to happen from decade upon decade upon decade.
0: And that, you know, you just alluded to environmental injustice doesn't stop at polluted air and polluted water, but it also plays a role in the lack of proper investment in the education medical system, unhealthy housing, the reduction of land value, and, and a lot more. And you elaborate some on those points that maybe people don't put those two items together, maybe want more information.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, and and I appreciate that question because you have to have a comprehensive set of strategies to address uh, these injustices that have continued to go on. So we know that we'll use children as an example. Most people care about children uh, and want to do something to help them to be able to have a, a healthy life. So we know that when kids are exposed to air pollution, as one example, or water pollution, that we often have some really interesting dynamics that go on. So when we had the instance in Flint, Michigan, as an example, you know, kids being exposed to lead, we know that when you're exposed to lead, it makes it tougher for you to be able to learn. There's neurological disorders that are associated with it and a number of other health impacts that are there kids can't learn. So it's tied to education. We also know there are a number of studies that have shown that in many of the areas that have some of the highest levels of air pollution, that also it impacts the brain, once again, making it more difficult for kids to be able to learn, uh, for babies to be able to develop. So it ties into education. Let's go deeper. When we talk about housing, we know that housing policy uh, over the years had discrimination that was a part of it. We have restrictive covenances and redlining that push people into certain areas. We disinvested from those areas. So in one area that might only be a few miles away, somebody might have the exact same type of home square footage, but their home might be worth $100,000 more, $200,000 more Then folks have been pushed into these redlined and restrictive covenant sort of sets of areas. So there's that housing wealth. And we know that in our country, at least when I was growing up, you know, everybody was always saying, you know what, make sure you go to school, get a good education, buy a house, get married, right? Housing is one of the ways that we move wealth from one generation to the next generation. So when we have these types of dynamics going on, where housing values in one area is less than another, then that is that compounding or cumulative sets of impacts that are going on. Then we also have to bring in the other aspect. That when we look at where many of our fossil fuel facilities are located, where petrochemical facilities, all these other things that we mentioned, they're placed in these communities where they're supposed to be lower value for the land. And the reason there's lower value for the land is because, once again, these were the sacrifice zones. So all of these things compound on these communities. Um, and that's why environmental justice is, a, yes, it is about the environment, but it's much broader than that. You know, it is about our banking system as well. Um, And it is also about our food system. When we talk about food justice or food insecurity, when you look at these areas, these sacrifice zones, all of these things are placed in those areas or the things that could help them, they never get. Crumbling infrastructure or non-existent infrastructure. So we have to have that, once again, a holistic set of actions to be able to lift communities up. Uh, and be able to help them to be able to have these thriving communities that we all hope to be able to live in, raise our children and our grandchildren.
0: Food deserts, you know, that 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 just sparked in my mind, you know, this concept of, you know, the reality that so many of the people in, we record the show in California, but we broadcast across the the nation. And not only in California, not only in Texas, across this nation, we have so many individuals who are suffering from food insecurity, meaning not knowing where their next nutritious meal will come. And I think that's a point too, where people are like, well, people can get food. Well, it it needs to be nutritious. We need to be able to feed the brain. We need to be able to feed the body, nourish ourselves in a equitable way. And I want to know if you want to speak to that concept for a moment.
1: Yeah, well, we understand caloric intake is incredibly important. Nutritious food is incredibly important, especially for folks who are trying to fight off all these pollution, all these toxins uh, that they're being overburdened with. You know, your immune system can't fight if it doesn't have uh, the right nutrition, the right minerals, um, and a number of other substances that are incredibly important. And when you're in an area where, you know, you can't get to fresh, healthy food, then it makes it extremely difficult for you to be able to have a strong body, to be able to navigate, you know, things. You know, we've got some chemicals out there that almost every person in this country is going to have to deal with and navigate. But we also know that there's this toxic loading when you're closer to certain facilities that, you know, I'm sure we'll unpack some of that. So that's why food justice is so incredibly important. And, you know, we have opportunities to address it in things like the Farm Bill and a number of other pieces of legislation. That gives us an opportunity to take a look and say, where are those vulnerable communities? What are the sets of additional actions we need to take uh, to make sure that they have access to the things, to basic amenities, I often say, that will will help them to be able to navigate both the sets of challenges and opportunities we have in front of us. You know, we need to make sure that we're making investments um, for small farmers. We need to make investments in those community gardens, but we also got to make sure that land is cleaned up because oftentimes folks, you know, are, are trying to grow things in locations where, you know, there's former toxins in the land. So we've got to make sure people have the resources to know, is their soil clean? And then to be able to grow uh, that produce that's so necessary, both on a small and a medium-sized scale.
0: Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. Everyone stay tuned. I want to come back and talk about the Farm Bill. You know, we've been talking about more urban environments, but I also want to talk about what's happening on sovereign land with, with indigenous communities, some of the solutions that have been put out recently by the EPA. So everyone, please stay tuned and we will be right back with Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website. That's EcojusticeRadio.org. You can check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media for an extended version of this interview as well as other benefits we encourage you to become a member of our patreon i am your host jessica aldridge and today you are listening to the future of environmental protection and social justice with former epa official dr mustafa santiago ali now the executive vice president of national wildlife federation and founder and ceo of revitalization strategies Welcome back, everyone. We are here with Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali. You had just mentioned the Farm Bill and how the Farm Bill may address and support uh, vulnerable communities' access to to basic amenities. Uh, I would love to hear more about that because I think when people think of the Farm Bill, they're like, well, that's farmers and the food getting to our plate and how that may affect our pocketbook or our access to specific types of food. But it's so much greater than that. And it affects us on such a, a larger holistic level. So I would love your, your take on it.
1: Well, you know, I see the farm bill in a very expansive way and having the opportunity to touch everyone inside of our country. You know, we have an opportunity. We know that. Black and brown farmers lost land, you know, through sets of actions over the years. We know that they also, in many instances, I've worked with a number of them. You know, if they could expand out sort of the their their acreage, in many instances, they donate and give food to vulnerable communities. So, you know, we have opportunities there. Inside of the farm bill, most people sometimes don't know that is also an opportunity. It's it's a place where, you know, old programs, everybody remembers the name food stamps, if you're of a certain age you know, SNAP and these other types of things, you know, it gives us an opportunity to really begin to better zero in on the needs that exist inside of vulnerable communities. Let's make sure we give a clarifying point for folks also. Often when we think about folks who are getting government assistance, we just think about folks of color. There are a the vast majority more of our white brothers and sisters who are also struggling. So we are all in it together, trying to figure out how that we address these issues. How do we make sure the kids have what they need? Both when they're getting ready to go to school, you know, lots of times kids, uh, their first nutritious meal of the day is actually that breakfast um, that they may have at school. So we need to make sure that throughout the day. I see the Farm Bill as an opportunity to make sure not only do we have the produce that's necessary, making sure that farmers have what they need to continue Uh, to be able to grow especially in a changing world and we understand the climate crisis is going to exacerbate the impacts that are happening in the growing season but also how do we better support those local growers that are often coming together in a communal group how do we make sure that the farm bill is honoring that set of work um, that one can help to create jobs but at the same time helps to make sure that we don't have those transportation costs because we're growing as much as we can locally. So there are numerous opportunities that exist in that space for us to meet the needs uh, of this moment, but also be thinking very critically about the future sets of opportunities that are in front of us.
0: We also, well, you also spoke to Indigenous rights and the examples that we've been exploring before our break we're more of the urban environment. Mm -hmm. However, there's, you know, sovereign land of the indigenous people that tends to be more rural. How does environmental racism play out on indigenous land and communities? I mean, mean, like, for example, the government chose to allow the oil company Enbridge Mm -hmm. to put the Dakota Access Pipeline through indigenous land, sovereign land, versus going around the territory, which they could have done you know, going around the territory of Standing Rock Sioux and placing it on surrounding farmland. We just talked about the farm bill, you know, so they decided, nope, we're going to go through, we're going to go through, you know, sovereign land. How, how is environmental racism playing out here? Well, it
1: plays out in a number of different dynamics. So you, you brought pipelines in, so I'm going to unpack that and then we can jump to some of the other issues. You know, we have 2.4 million miles of fossil fuel pipeline in our country. Most folks never realize that. We've got enough fossil fuel pipeline to go to the moon and back twice and on our way back to the moon. And as you said, you know, a lot of that fossil fuel pipeline runs through indigenous brothers and sisters lands and territories. And in many instances, you know, because we have never honored our indigenous brothers and sisters or the treaties um, that were put in place, we continue to place this undue burden on the people who have always been, you know, connected to Mother Earth, if you will. So we have to be very mindful of these power imbalances that continue to exist that allow uh pipelines and other types of, of fossil fuel and, and toxic facilities to often be placed on, on folks' land there. But we got to unpack it a little further. So we also got to talk about the disinvestment that has continually happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. Most folks have never spent any time on reservations. And let let, let me also just bring into our conversation that all Indigenous brothers and sisters don't live on reservations. Of course, there are some like in Los Angeles and a number of other cities, but we're focusing right now sort of on reservations and and on, on traditional lands. When you go there, you will find that you have individuals who often have to travel great distances just to be able to go get water. I've seen people have to travel 10, 20, 30, 40 miles, and I'm sure some people even further, to actually be able to get to drinking water and then have to port it back to the places that they live and then have to conserve for a certain period of time because they know that they can't do it, you know, on a regular basis. That is because We have not invested in the infrastructure, both the drinking water and wastewater. So you got folks also being exposed, uh, both here in the lower, lower 48 and in Alaska and other locations around human waste and not being able to properly deal with that because we haven't made the infrastructure investments that are so necessary. And that's why the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and other things begin us on a journey of being able to address that. But let's unpack it a little bit further. We also know that there is a lack um, of health care that exists on indigenous lands, uh, on the reservations. So folks have not also invested in that space. Um, And then it all starts to cascade because then you start to get into education. You get into jobs because if you can't get a strong education, then it makes you less competitive in a more competitive world to be able to have the jobs that are necessary. So, you know, we have to get to the root causes of what's going on and why people are struggling, I um, mean, you know, if we can get it right on indigenous lands, uh, on the reservations, in the Black Belt, running through the southern part of our country, in Appalachia, then we can get it right in other locations, but we have to have the will to actually do it, and that's where the rub is, is that it actually takes some resources. It also takes some people actually standing up men and women of good conscience, and others of good conscience. I want to make sure I'm including our whole family who may be in the legislative process. But that also demands that each and every one of us better understand the utility and the power that exists inside of our vote, um, because whether we're talking about the local, the county, the state, or the federal level, your vote in many instances will determine if people move in a positive direction, or if they drag their feet, or if they intentionally try and stop a process.
0: How, generally speaking, how would the government rectify environmental racism and injustices? And I know that's a really packed question right there, but yeah, are...
1: it's a, it, it's it's an excellent question, and it is one that everyone in our country should be grappling with and thinking critically about. So the first thing we do is, even though there are folks like myself and others who can can help you and can identify where. Our most vulnerable communities are there are tools that are out there, GIS tools um, that you can literally put in the lat longs. You can put in the zip codes. There are a number of different ways of identifying the areas that you want to look at. And it'll light up and it'll show you where those areas are, what are the impacts that are going on, where the deficits that are. So then that's where intentionality comes in. We make a commitment over the next 10 years, the next 20 years, whatever the number is that when people get in dark rooms, we'll come up with but we can't let the dark rooms make the decision because we got to put some light on it. And that means that everyday people have to be a part of the conversation. And that's why I say that folks have to start to question. Doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, or independent, we should be asking tough questions. How are you going to help to address this issue? But it starts with us saying, this is an issue, this is a problem, and we want to make sure that there's a solution for it. So once we've identified when those areas are, we decide a time frame. Then we begin to make sure that the resources are moving there. We also hold people accountable who have played a role um, in these impacts, um, uh, but also understanding that you want to work um, as an authentic partner in that place. Um, and we begin the journey uh, of addressing what's going on. Every community is not exactly the same, but many of them have reoccurring themes.
0: And that that brings up a good point too. You know, you mentioned previously the importance of communities speaking for themselves. Mm-hmm. So how can people and organizations outside of those impacted communities provide support, not lead it, but provide it like, you know,
1: you do what, what happened in the small community that I grew up in. I grew up in a community that I think is what America is supposed to look like. When there was a problem, folks came together. When uh, I grew up in Appalachia and a little bit in Michigan. So when folks crops were coming in, You know, if folks didn't have the money to be able to hire folks, folks came together and and worked. When there was a fire in our community because there was no fire station for miles and miles and miles away, everybody came. This is a moment where everybody um, has to come together. And how do we do that? You show up as an authentic ally in that space. And what that means is that in many instances, communities have many of the answers for themselves that they have thought about. So we bring our privilege. All of us almost have privilege. Not, I wouldn't say everybody, but the vast majority of people have some form of privilege. And the other thing that you have is gifts and blessings. And we bring all those into the same space to be able to figure out what is needed to be able to move the agenda. And that means that if you're a great writer, there's things for you to do. If you're an economist, if you are uh, someone who runs a daycare center. You know, no matter what your gift and blessing is, we bring it together so that folks can start to work out what the plan is. And then we start to utilize that plan to say, these are the three, four, five things that we want to happen in the next 18 months. Here's the next set. Here's the next set. How do I know that that works? Because we've done it. We've done it through things like the collaborative problem solving model. We see it in places like Spartanburg, South Carolina, or the work of Miss Margaret May in Kansas City. Or the work of Diana and uh, Carolina Martinez over in National City, there in California, in San Diego. I can give you a laundry list of where these things have worked and where when people come together and we've been able to start to, to move toward justice, if you will. Here's a better way, because I've heard justice is, is a bad word for some folks. <laughs> and so so that we move forward toward a North Star. I haven't heard anybody say that a North Star is yet one of the banned words that we no longer want to use in our country.
0: <laughs> I like that. I would I would like to get your take on two recent solution based EPA rulings, mm-hmm. one regarding regulating PFAS levels, and we'll talk about what that is in a second, and drinking water. And we've covered that on the show multiple times of PFAS and had Rob Balat on the show as well. And the other is setting miles per gallon standards on passenger vehicles. So the first one, let's start with PFAS. Mm-hmm. The EPA passed the first ever federal standards and regulatory limits to protect drinking water from PFAS, the per and polyfluorinated chemicals, why is this so incredibly important?
1: Well, because of PFOS, or PFOS uh, there, there's a few different acronyms that describe sort of the set of chemicals that are in this space are dangerous. You know, they are cancer-causing uh, chemicals at a high enough level. They also can do all kinds of things around developmental issues and a number of other, other diseases. And, you know, there are different studies that are out there, but there may be up to 200 million people in our country who have been exposed to it. We've also found that when they do blood testing, that around 98% of of the folks who were tested, that we find these chemicals inside of their blood. So it's a significant thing. It is one of those things that moves across, hopefully, these these political boundaries that we have. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, you could have been uh, exposed to this chemical. And the reason that they call it a forever chemical is because it stays in our environment you know there's some slight ways of mitigating some of the stuff but it's better for us to actually address it and this you know these sets of chemicals are actually in a lot of of the different packaging carpet my work with firefighters before in the foam so it's all kinds of folks across our country
0: furniture our clothing anything that says waterproof at this point our food packaging uh, to go wear containers yeah
1: and and there's sets of actions over at EPA and broader than that that have been put in place that can help us to begin this very tough journey. This is one of those journeys that's going to be as significant as climate, as the climate crisis, when we really look at it. So l- let's start to unpack this in a way that hopefully folks say, you know what, it's a big problem, but we can actually get at it. So we know that you know that the president and others had about two billion dollars that were out there, you know, around the um, dollars that we got from the Inflation Reduction Act and, and a couple of these other things that are out there. So there's some resources that actually begin to address some of the things that are happening uh, on the water side of the equation, especially for vulnerable communities, whether it is rural communities or inner city communities. There, there are dollars that are there now for us to begin that journey. The other part of some of the things that, that EPA has been doing you know, is around the drinking water standards and, and beginning to make sure that there is a more health protective standard because there hasn't been one in the past. So if you really want to be able to lower something, then you got to know where you, what your baseline is and where you're starting. You know, so that's important. They've got the roadmap that's out there. So there are a number of different things that are now beginning to take root, if I can say it that way, to help us on this journey. But um, let me let you uh, take me uh, in the direction you need me to go.
0: <laughs> this is I could talk to you for days. The, the other uh, EPA ruling that I wanted to speak to that I mentioned was the new federal greenhouse gas emission standards for passenger cars and light trucks, establishing a 55 miles per gallon corporate average fuel economy. And that's a target for model years, 2026 vehicles. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that one?
1: Well, I start with the fact that we have that last count. And of course, you know, this could vary a little bit about 200 million, 290 million vehicles that we have on the road. So we know that you know what's coming out of those tailpipes is having some significant impacts inside of communities. Uh, and we also, for those of us who are students of history, we've got to also understand how our roads and our highways were used uh, to break up certain communities, bring wealth into some communities and to drop off pollution into others. So we've got that historical aspect that we just have to be mindful of as we're making decisions. We also know that in our country right now, We have, based upon a study that came from Harvard, we've got uh, about 250,000 to 300,000 people who die prematurely from air pollution. A part of that air pollution is what's coming out of those tailpipes as well. And there's all kinds of impacts that are a part of that. So why is this particular uh, set of actions so incredibly important? One, because it can help to lower the impacts that are happening in our most vulnerable communities. It can help to lower the impacts that are helping to moms and pregnant moms and, and babies that are born because of this, these sets of exposures. Um, they have all these impacts on the body. I can go into those impacts if, if folks would like me to. It also helps us to address the climate crisis. One of the major drivers of what's happening in the climate space is happening because of our transportation system. So if we move toward electric vehicles, if we move to making sure that we are lowering the emissions that are happening, then it gives us an opportunity to get our arms around the climate crisis. So if you are someone who lives in a place that's dealing with extreme heat, and we know extreme heat can be very deadly for certain folks, or if you're someone who's had to deal with these floods, we know the floods are also tied uh, to what's going on uh, around greenhouse gases and, and how it is impacting our environment. We can go down the laundry list of those connections that are going on. So if you don't take anything else away from it, take one, we get a chance to help vulnerable communities who are overburdened. And two, we get a chance to address the climate crisis. And three, we get a chance to create a new set of economic opportunities for all those folks like where I grew up, where the plants shut down a number of years ago. We now have an opportunity to bring some new jobs into those areas. So it's a win, win, win.
0: Yeah, it is, and uh, we have a couple minutes or a minute here before the break. And you had said, if people want to know what the health effects are, let's let's share those. What are some of these health effects that we're seeing?
1: It's mind blowing. It, it you would think that in one of the wealthiest countries in the world that we would not see these cancer clusters that exist. The cancer clusters exist because we have you know certain areas that are overburdened by pollution. Um, so we have to deal with that. We also know that in our country. You know, we've got 24 million folks who have asthma, 7 million kids, Um, and we know the impact that asthma can have both in loss of life and the ability or or lack of ability to be able to learn. And it also impacts folks who are trying to get up and go to work every day. And if you have an asthma attack, you know, you're going to end up in the emergency room. So we know that that's a part of these sets of exposures that are going on. Liver and kidney diseases are never another set of the exposures that we find linked to many of these types of things. And then there's these other studies that have come out that, you know, we have to pay attention to. We know the air pollution, since we're talking about the stuff that came out of the tailpipes of cars and light trucks. We also know now that we see that dementia and Alzheimer's, ADHD, and a number of these other diseases that are attached to the brain, that are also that there are these connections to what people are breathing in. And we have a chance to change that. That's the thing, is that, you know, after natural disasters, so I've worked natural disasters and man-made disasters. It's amazing, and rightly so, how people come together after a hurricane comes through or a flood comes through. We all rally, and we say, you know what? We're going to help our neighbor. We're going to help those brothers and sisters and, and other family because we see people who are in trouble. We see people who have been hurt, and we want to do something. This is another opportunity for us to do something. When I see people who are resistant to making sure that we have the right types of regulations in place to help people to breathe, that's something that we do every day. We take in 20,000 breaths. If you're an athlete like I used to be, you might take in a few more. Or if you're a child um, and you're out there playing, you might take in a few more. But on average, 20,000 breaths. The question is, should everybody be able in those 20,000 breaths to breathe in something that is clean and pristine and good for their body? Or should they have to be able to breathe in toxins like the folks in the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, that when you go there and roll down the windows of your car, you feel like you're breathing in gasoline fumes and 20,000 breaths a day. That's what they're breathing in. Or an institute, West Virginia. there in the Kanawha Valley where folks are also getting all these different sets of exposures. So we have a chance in this moment to actually show up in the 21st century with knowledge and information and opportunities to change those dynamics, but we have to be willing to actually lean in and do something. And that's not just for those folks who are sitting in Capitol Hill or in state houses. Yes, they have a huge responsibility, but just like we show up when there is that natural disaster, let's begin to show up to make sure that we are changing these dynamics and that we're building a brighter future in this moment and for generations to come.
0: Thank you. We're going to take a break real quick. So inspiring to listen to you. I want to ask some questions about East Palestine, Ohio, the, the PVC derailment and what happened there, um, what happened with this West Virginia EPA ruling, and you know, get some more information for our listeners. This has been an excellent conversation. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners! Quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sundays at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website. That's EcoJusticeRadio.org. You can check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media for an extended version of this interview as well as other benefits we encourage you to become a member of our patreon i am your host jessica aldridge and today you are listening to the future of environmental protection and social justice with former epa official dr mustafa santiago ali now the executive vice president of national wildlife federation and founder and ceo of revitalization strategies Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali. This has been such an amazing conversation so far. And I want to jump into some of the issues, uh, environmental issues that we've seen recently. One that people may have fresh on their mind was that there was this massive train derailment and these toxic chemicals that were released into an environment. So on February 3rd of 2023, In East Palestine, Ohio, there was a 61 train car derailment that forced half of the town to evacuate. Five of those tanker cars were carrying almost 900,000 pounds of vinyl chloride, this human carcinogen. And as some may know it, it's a petrochemical for the number three plastic, PVC, vinyl. Officials conducted a controlled burn release of the toxic chemicals to avoid an explosion of those train cars. And it seems maybe that there was no federal oversight on the decision of how the release, how they were going to release this massive amount of chemicals in that burn. Residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are still saying that they're suffering from the health consequences, but the EPA has said that the area is safe now for habitation. Mm-hmm. How did we end up in this situation where this type of disaster can happen?
1: Well, when... Governments don't act beforehand when they have the opportunity to, then it creates an atmosphere for these types of things to actually happen. Maybe we should share with folks sort of in a broader context of what's going on in relation to the rail system. So we have 160,000 miles um, of railway uh, running across our country. We have 25 million people who are living in these things called blast zones. So the, the analyses that are done, where the train tracks are, and how you know how many people are living close by based upon how broad an explosion would be, and there's about 25 million folks who are in there. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question also, when you look at the train tracks, uh, whose communities do those run through? And it runs through Black and Brown communities, lower-wealth white communities, uh, through Indigenous lands once again. Um, and you know sometimes it'll weave in and out of, of some of the cities and those different types of things, but we know pretty much that's where you get that that old adage, the other side of the tracks type of thing. so you got to have some tracks <laughs> for people to be on the other side of the tracks um, so, so you've got that dynamic that we have the totality of what's going on, you know across our country. I, I forget what the last number is. I think over the last five years we've about to have about 1,700 uh, derailments that have gone on and sometimes these derailments, uh, end up being the type of situation that we saw uh, going on here in East Palestine uh, until politicians are willing to do the right thing. So going all the way back to President Obama and then coming into President Trump, you know, uh, President Obama had moved forward on some some regulations and some sets of actions, excuse me, that would have better regulated some of the things that were happening around breaking systems and other stuff. Um, President Trump didn't see value in it, said it was going to cost too much. Somebody got in his ear, said those types of things because we know he's not an expert on rail systems, as, as most senior folks probably aren't, and made a decision. And then we had the derailment that happened there. Now, when the derailment happened, of course, you had the plume and you had exposures that were there. You have the fallout that comes there, the fallout both into the water, into the land. Um, and then if somebody had, you know, either the windows open or they had um, an air conditioning unit or some other HVAC system that was running, then it pulls it into the house. So folks have been very, very nervous. I've been there. I've talked to folks and they have great concerns because they've seen some of the sets of impacts that have happened. So let's, let's once again, as we're tying East Palestine, let's make sure that we're helping people to understand that there are communities across our country. Who have had to face these similar sets of exposures, sometimes for decades upon decades, like the folks in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, who have also had to deal with vinyl chloride and a number of other uh, cancer-causing chemicals, and that's why they call it Cancer Alley. So we have an opportunity to help communities to heal. One through making sure, like the Senate uh, has a bill that they put forward um, to one, make sure there's better sets of inspections that are going on to make sure there's a higher compensation uh, for those who are impacted and then also technology on around braking systems. Now, those three things I just mentioned would seem like common sense stuff, you know, one, making sure there's inspections. (laughs) How could anybody not agree with that? You know, making sure that there's the systems to test the brakes um, as they're moving through. And, And then the third part is if somebody is harmed to make sure that they have the remuneration that's necessary. So if we can't even get together on common sense stuff, We're going to continue to leave people vulnerable.
0: And who does? Who pays for that cleanup and the impacts to the people's homes and property values and the illnesses that are going to come with it?
1: It always comes back to the consumer if you think about it, even when companies often are fined. So if we look at our environmental laws and the enforcement actions, so I wore a couple different hats before I left the EPA. One, I was a senior advisor to the administrator, and I was also the assistant associate administrator in enforcement and compliance. Um, so uh, even when we have these cases, in many instances, you know, folks who are making hundreds of um, billions of dollars or billions of dollars, the fines that often they are hit with, you know, are not of significance that it makes them change their behavior. But to answer your question, often it comes back to the consumer, because even if the company pays out money, in many instances, they'll just raise the fees that they that they charge as a way of recouping their cost. Um, so. You know, the best thing is for us not to have these things happen because we do everything in our power to minimize the possibility of it happening.
0: So North Folk Southern, that's the rail company that derailed. Do you feel that their response was adequate?
1: No, I don't. You know, one, you, you need to be able to respond quickly. I understand you got to, you know, rally the troops and all that kind of stuff and, and, you know, figure out exactly what you're going to say. But you got to show up. You got to let people know that you care, that you're connected, um, that you that you understand that there's some trauma that's going on and that you're going to be there both, and, you know, in this moment, you know, when the emergency is happening and you're going to be there in totality throughout time and, you, and you're going to make sure that you're following uh, the possible impacts um, and the additional things that people might need around healthcare, the additional things kids might need around education, you know, so forth and so on. So, and I've seen enough of these types of things to, to have, you know, a, a pretty good feel uh, for what's going on. You know, you got to take responsibility. And I understand your attorneys aren't going to want you to to do that in a full-throated way, but I guarantee you people will appreciate knowing that there's real authenticity and you being with them in that moment that you, not only you're sorry, but you're also going to make sure that you rectify the situation.
0: Yeah, and, and just to reiterate, that's not just Norfolk Southern. That's any of these corporations, any of these fossil fuel-related companies, whatever it might be, that are causing any harm to the community, that you have to be there for the community as well, and hopefully making it so that the harm doesn't happen in the first place. But if it does, that you have that responsibility. In a recent ruling uh, for West Virginia versus the EPA, the Supreme Court, in a six to three decision, limited the Environmental Protection Agency's power to regulate carbon emissions from power plants, President Biden said that the court's ruling in this case is seen as a major victory for the fossil fuel industry and is a result of decades-long attempt to limit the regulations of corporations, just like we were talking about. And Justice, Justice Kagan wrote that the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision makers on climate policy, and that they cannot think of many things more frightening. How does this court case, West Virginia versus the EPA, affect the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions coming from power plants? And why is it so important to regulate them in the first place?
1: (laughs) Well, why it makes it more difficult to be able to achieve the goals that not only President Biden had set out, but that we had through the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, and the commitments that we made to the rest of the world to, to come together to be able to address what's going on in the climate crisis. So it once again, it just makes it more difficult for EPA. There are other vehicles that they can use, but it also does some other things. It shows the lack of connection that the Supreme Court has to everyday people and the impacts that are happening inside of their lives. Because not only are you regulating carbon, but you also have the co-pollutants that are a part of that process and those co-pollutants that are having impacts in vulnerable communities. You know, so, you, so you've got that dynamic that's going on. And of course, the healthcare costs that are associated with it. And it also just shows that they don't do an environmental justice analysis. Uh, When I went and took a look at that case, nowhere did I see that there was an environmental justice analysis uh, associated with this incredibly important decision that they had to make. So when you have an activist court that has not had much respect for the hard and difficult work of being able to um, regulate, pollution and to regulate carbon um, then you see where where that disconnect uh, continues to happen. And I'll just add the last point if we don't like what we see the Supreme Court doing then that means you have to get engaged in the civic process and you have to vote. I never tell anybody to vote for who to vote for, but I'm saying you better start voting for somebody who cares about the dynamics that are happening inside of your communities. Do your own research, find out who that is and that should help to be a guide for you as you pull that lever, or drop it in that drop box, or however it is that you vote.
0: What solutions do you want to see?
1: I want to see tougher regulation. So here's the beauty. We have the science. The science has told us what we have to do. We just have to figure out, you know, what parts of uh, of that, you know, that we want to bring into the decision-making process. Um, so what I want to see is that we're honoring science. Um, and if the science says that you have to be able to hit this point, by this time period, then that should be our guide to being able to make sure that we're making the right types of actions that are necessary. This is not about opinion. This should be about science. And the law should actually follow science.
0: Yeah. And a couple of questions before we end today's show. Again, thank you for being here with us. Where can people follow your efforts, follow the organizations that you're with? You are the um Executive Vice President of the National Wildlife Federation, CEO of Revitalization Strategies. Where can people follow you? Because I'm sure they want to continue this conversation with you.
1: Well, I appreciate that. So the first thing I would ask folks is to actually follow those frontline organizations who are on the ground doing the work on a daily basis. You can Google them or just have a conversation. You'll find amazing organizations. Take your gifts and blessings. First, listen uh, and, and then, then share uh, whatever those blessings are that you might have. If you want to follow me, you can go to nwf.org. Amazing work happening at the National Wildlife Federation, because we know that understand there's an interconnectedness between what the impacts are having to wildlife, that pollution that's happening in communities, and also the climate crisis. Or you can go to MustafaSantiagoAli.com. That'll get you to revitalization strategies. The most important thing is to just begin to think critically and get engaged, get involved. You are needed. You are valued. You are honored. And together, we can make real change happen.
0: And we always ask this of our guests. Are there books or writings that you recommend our listeners check out?
1: Ah, well, behind me is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. I think that that's an incredibly important book. You can look at all the amazing books by one of the folks who I learned from early on in my career, Dr. Robert Bullard. I think uh, Dr. Bullard now has about 25 books that are out there. So I always tell people to start with one of their early ones, Dumping in Dixie, which really gives you a good understanding of these disproportionate impacts that have always happened in communities of color. But, you know, there are so many amazing, amazing, some of the younger people who are out there who are writing about intersectionality and bringing all these together. So once again, let's use these, these big brains that we have um, and figure out what your what your flavor is, what your flow is, and, and go from there.
0: Oh, it has been so great having you on the show. I could just talk to you for hours. Thank you for making time for us and being here and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your experience. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. I want to thank Jack, um, you know, for, for everything um, and, and, and staying connected um, until I can join you. Jessica, I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank Blake. I just want to thank the show. Just give me 15 seconds here. I want to thank you all so much because we often don't put a spotlight on the issues um, that are so critically important. James Baldwin once said that if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. Shows like this are incredibly important because people are trying to put food on the table. They're trying to keep the lights on. And often they don't have the time to go out and do the research or to really understand. And that's why shows like this help to bring that information forward, to plant seeds, and hopefully those seeds will grow and people will then say, you know what, I want to find out more. Usually, most people I've met, I've worked in over a thousand communities now, once people have that information, once that seed begins to grow, people get engaged because most folks are good. Most folks want to just figure out, well, what is it that I can do? I only got an hour a month or maybe an hour a week. And as soon as they figure some things out, they see some things, they're like, wait a minute, This is not what our country is supposed to be. There's a lot of good in our country, but we still got some gaps. I want to do something about addressing the gaps. And that's why this show and shows like this are so incredibly important because they help folks to finally be able to see um, the things that they couldn't see.
0: That is so incredibly nice and beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And, And I appreciate everything that you're doing out in the community, what you did for the EPA, what you're doing. For the organizations that you're working for, we are very lucky, very lucky as a community, as a global community to have you on the right side of, of the environment and of the community. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been Eco Justice Radio and our show, The Future of Environmental Protection and Social Justice with former EPA official Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, now the Executive Vice President of National Wildlife Federation and founder and CEO of Revitalization Strategies. Thank you to our guest and thank you to our listeners for joining us. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon or visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org. Please connect with us on social media. You can find us at Eco Justice Radio, SoCal 350 and Adventures in Waste. And if you like what you heard, you want others to be informed, then you know what to do. Subscribe, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a tax-deductible donation to the show. A project of SoCal 350 and Adventures in Waste, the show can be found on KPFK, KPFT, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Executive producer Jack Icke, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.